Maybe I shouldn't ask that question like that. I guess game shows are still on TV. I wouldn't know. I don't really watch any. But I felt like as a kid growing up, game shows were just kind of always on TV. Anytime I was at my grandma's house, you know, Wheel of Fortune, you know, and there's Pat Sajak and Vanna White standing by the empty blank spaces, and she obviously doesn't know anything. She's just standing there kind of dutifully waiting to touch the little screen and have the letter turn over. One of the most frustrating things about watching these game shows for me was when you obviously knew the answer, but the person on the show didn't know this incredibly obvious answer. One example of that from Wheel of Fortune is the answer on the board was the world's fastest man. And they had guessed all the letters necessary except for the M in the end. So as you look at the board, it says the world's fastest A. And the contestant eagerly spins the wheel, 300. He, I'm ready to guess. Can I get a C? A, a C? The world's fastest cat? I, I don't know. It's, it's frustrating. You just want to yell at the TV screen. You guys remember Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Equally frustrating. Those clips can't be found anymore except for on YouTube. And the clips that are on YouTube are the clips where people miss the very obvious answers, the ridiculous ones. An example of that would be, there was a question that the little British lady with the red hair and the red rimmed glasses asked. She said, this is the first question of the show. What country borders the United States to the north? And the answers, one by one, pop up on the screen. Answer number one, USA. Answer number two, Canada. Answer number three, Mexico. Answer number four, Quebec. Which country borders the USA to the north? The person says Quebec. I want to choose D, Quebec. Now, you have to remember that with Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, the audience wasn't allowed to say or do anything. It had to be dead silent in there. And the lady with the British accent and the red hair, she was stone cold. I mean, she just, is that your final answer? I mean, nothing to give it away. Not an eye twitch, not an eyebrow, nothing. Is that your final answer? She could have phoned home. She could have phoned a friend, I think. I th yeah. She could have used a lifeline. Any kind. She didn't do it. She's confidently, firmly, she says, oh yeah, Quebec. I am sorry. That is incorrect. Moments like these can be incredibly frustrating for us as we watch the TV screen and we scream at it like people watching horror movies. Don't go in there. Isn't it so obvious? You know, give the right answer. Isn't it so obvious? As you read the book of Mark and you see the way people respond to Jesus, it gets very frustrating because you're screaming at them going, isn't this so obvious? Look at who Jesus Christ is. It's almost as if Everything about the book is screaming to us, Jesus is the Son of God. Look at his authority over the demons. Look at his authority over sickness. Look at his authority over the uh, religious leaders of the day. Look at his unique ministry. Look at the way he fulfills prophecy. Look at the way John the Baptist talks about him. Look at the way God speaks about him from heaven. Look at the way that he calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, isn't it obvious that Jesus is who he says he is? Even the demons know who Jesus is. In today's text, in verse 11, 
chapter 3, verse 11, we see that the unclean spirits fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. This is the third time in the book of Mark that demons have rightly under, understood and identified who Jesus Christ is, and yet it seems like no one else is getting the picture. Well, whether or not any of the people in the Gospel of Mark actually understand who Jesus is, it seems to me that apart from the religious leaders, they seem to be growing very fond of him. Let's read about this, in, starting in verse 7. We're going to go to verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 7 to verse 9. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. The first thing that we would do well to note here in these verses is that Jesus' ministry amongst the Jews is spreading out to greater and greater distances. Now let me warn you, I'm about to take a very long arc to come back to this same point. I'm about to walk us basically through a massive part of Old Testament history in order to help us understand what's going on here. As a preacher, preaching through Mark 1 and 2 has been super easy. I mean, not easy. It's God's Word. You've got to wrestle with it, figure out how to apply it to people in a way that they actually care about and so that they don't fall asleep. By the way, I got my eyes on the usual suspects. But other than that, I mean, it's just Jesus' baptism. Jesus is casting out demons. He's healing people. There's just a lot of material here to work with. And then you get to this part, and it seems like, oh, uh, Jesus is healing people, and then people are coming to him, and then there's another encounter with a demon. But we've already talked about that twice. So what's going on here? Why is it so significant that people are coming to Jesus from Jerusalem and Judea and from Idumea and from Tyre and Sidon and from east of the Jordan River? Mark doesn't have this in here by accident. There's a reason why he's telling us that people are coming to Jesus from these faraway places. Now listen, Idumea was about 120 miles to the south of where Jesus was doing his ministry. Tyre and Sidon were about 50 miles to the north. That may not feel like much for us in our automobile age. I drove to Birmingham and back yesterday. I hated every second of it. Loud kids. You know, it was just not good. It was not a pleasant experience for me. But it was relatively easy. But imagine living in pre-automobile days, traveling 120 miles, all because you've heard a rumor that there's, there's this guy. And, and he's not like other guys. Some people say he's the Messiah. So they travel to find him. It's as if the moths are being drawn to the flame of Jesus' ministry. Jesus kind of seems to be lighting himself up like a great fire in the night. And all the moths and winged insects are attracted to him. They are being drawn in by his light. Jesus already showed us a little bit about his identity as a true Israel. Do you guys remember that? when I preached on the baptism of Jesus, we said that, why did Jesus need to be baptized? Well, it wasn't because he was a sinner. I think it was because he was identifying with Israel. 
And so he identified with the sinful people of Israel. And then he passed through the waters of judgment, which all sinners must do. And then, Israel, and then he came out as God's blessed son in the same way that Israel did. I think we see that same theme being developed here today in our text. Jesus is drawing men to himself in the way that Israel should have. The regions that Jesus is drawing men from, they belonged at one time to the original 12 tribes of Israel. I don't know if you all know your Old Testament very well, but as God's people entered God's holy land, there were allotments, and each tribe got a specific piece of land. But then a whole bunch of really bad stuff happened. God's people were judged, and God sent down the Assyrians to crush, and then after that, he sent down the, Babylons to de the Babylonians to destroy. So much of the place that was occupied at one time by God's people soon came to be inhabited by Gentiles, by half-breed Israelites in Samaria, many of whom are now coming to Jesus as the fame of his name spreads throughout the land. So when Mark tells us in this text that people are coming from Idumea and from east of the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon, that may not mean anything to you because you're like, what's an Idumea? Is that like a gluten-free snack? No, it's not. Idumea is a place, if you would have lived in this place in time, you would have known a place that was heavily populated by Gentiles. So the fact that all these Gentile people from Tyre and Sidon and Idumea and east of the Jordan River are coming to Jesus is an, a very significant fact. We see Jesus doing what he did with Matthew when he drew a sinner to himself. We see Jesus doing what he did when he met the disciples. He's calling sinners to himself. We see Jesus doing what he did when he met with the sinners and the tax collectors and ate with them. He's calling sinners to himself. And this was always part of the plan. God promised Abram, the father of the Jewish people, that the Jewish people would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. It was never supposed to be about Israel, 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 God's ethnic religious people. That was only and always supposed to be a means to an end. And that end was blessing all the nations of the earth. The ethnic people of Israel were supposed to be a light for the nations, a holy people that would draw the eyes of the nation to the God who had formed them. They were supposed to be an attractional people. God wanted the Israelites, the nation of Israel, to be such a just, loving, righteous, holy, faithful people that they would draw the rest of the nations of the earth to God through their presence among them. Speaking of this, Moses, in his law, says this. Speaking of God's law, says this. This is God speaking. Keep them and do them, for that will be wisdom in your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So Moses is saying, listen, these laws, the rest of the nation is going to look at the wisdom in these laws and the holiness of these laws, and they're going to go, whoa, what is going on with these people? Verse 7, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? The law and Israel's faithful obedience to the law and their loving obedience to the law was supposed to be like a light that would make other people go, what's that? And draw them in. But if you know the story of Israel, you know that they didn't do that. 
If you read the rest of your Old Testament after Moses and God said this, you see that they failed to live up their calling, up to their calling. They're not an attractional people. They did not draw the nations in by the light of their holiness. Rather, they became like the nations around them. Other nations had a king. So Israel got together and they were like, whoa, we need a king like the other nations. The other nations and their false gods had temples. So David said, you know what? I'm going to build my God the best temple there is. As if God needed David to build a house for him. Other nations worshipped idols. And it didn't take long before Israel started worshipping idols, sacrificing their children, and erecting Asherah poles in the land. Rather than drawing in the lost peoples of the nation through their holiness, through their grace, and through their love, the people of Israel were being drawn away into worldliness and into carnality and into sin and idolatry. The same is true of God's people in many ways today. I think about my own life when I laugh at jokes that I shouldn't. I think about times that I indulge in entertainment that's not appropriate. I think about people who, maybe even in this room, consume media that has pornography in it, thinking that it's okay just because it's a television show. God's word says that there ought not to be even a hint of sexual immorality among us. And yet some of us feel like we are more mature than God and his word. We feel like we can endure these things without being ensnared by them. Let the lesson of the people of Israel be a lesson for you. If you think you're above being ensnared by sin, you are not. In the same verse, where Paul talks about there not even being a hint of sexual immorality, he also talks about greed. He says there ought not to be a hint of greed. How are we doing there? As God's holy and chosen people, are we attracting the world by the way that we use our money? Or are we using our money in the same exact way that the world does? How do we treat our wealth? Do we desperately cling to it? Do we trust in it as if it were a God able to save us? Are we stingy and greedy with it? Or do we use it to glorify the God who actually saved us? Do we use money to help and to bless others? Do we use money in the life of this church to support the gospel ministry? Do we use our money in the same way that the world does, or do we use it differently? In what ways do we as God's people fail to distinguish ourselves, even as a church? Consider churches that do everything that they can possibly do to attract sinners by catering to them and to their carnal desires. Rather than worshiping God as he has demanded to be worshiped in his word. I know of churches that will skip over texts in their preaching because they're afraid of what people will say about it. I know churches that have smokes and lights and the biggest, coolest band around. And listen, I'm not saying that we can't do better with our band. But listen, they're doing whatever they can to cater to men's carnal desires. They're saying whatever the people want to hear in order to draw them in. But when the church is trying to be like the rest of the world, the people who are looking for something different than the world will begin to leave the church. That's not the way it was supposed to be. God intends for us to be holy as he is holy. He intends for us to live distinct lives that cause the unbelievers around us to pause, to take note, 
to scratch their head, to ask questions, maybe even to hate us. Probably, definitely to hate us. But sometimes, they embrace us. They get drawn in. I think about the time that my father, Caesar, spent with us. If you're a visitor, you don't know. I just met my father two years ago. He's not a Christian. He came out to spend time with the grandkids. And uh, while he was here, he was surrounded by believers. On Saturday night, we had a cookout. A bunch of Christians came. Sunday, we had church. I'm sure that was very strange for him. Every day we spent together while he was here, he was with my wife and my kids and other Christian friends. After the cookout on, sat- uh, after the cookout on Saturday, Caesar told me, he said, wow, you have a bunch of really positive friends. No one got drunk and acted like an idiot. That was really powerful for him. He's not used to that. He also said, speaking of my wife and I, you guys have something really special here in your marriage. Now, listen, while I'm sure that that's true, while I do think we are definitely the best couple in the room, I think that Caesar is probably just not used to seeing Christian marriages. He himself has been married twice. He's been divorced twice. And he just has never seen a marriage which is characterized more by respect, by humility, by service, rather than anger and lying and selfishness and bitterness and distrust. I don't think his comments about my friends or my marriage were mere observations, you know. I think he was genuinely attracted to what he observed there. Was it weird for him? I'm sure it was. I have to be honest. Whenever visitors come to this church, I know, like, we're a small church. You know, we don't always hit all the high points. Things are probably a little weird. But imagine that you're a, not, that you're a non-Christian and you come. Now, how much weirder must that be? And then imagine that I, his son, get up in the pulpit and I say, hey, listen, if you do not trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, you are under the wrath of God and hell is awaiting you. That must have been really awkward for him. But as strange and as unpalatable as I believe much of last weekend was for him, the experience of a distinct people was also very powerful. What he experienced last weekend with us is the opposite of what the nations experienced with Israel. There's nothing attractive about God's people bowing the knee to idols. There's nothing attractive about people who try to fit in with other people. Were you guys popular in high school? I was kind of popular and then unpopular and then really popular. I kind of lived in both worlds, then I got kicked out. But I think I've inhabited both realities of the teenage drama, and I also have about a decade behind behind me on those events. And one of the things that I've come to understand that high schoolers never do is that the harder you try to be cool, the less cool you're going to be, right? The kid who's always trying to be cool, it doesn't work for him. But the kid who's just kind of like, hey, man, whatever, it's just, you know, I'm just going with it. That's the kid that people usually end up being attracted to. They're the coolest kids around. You see the same phenomenon taking place with Israel and the nations of the Old Testament. The more they adapt to the nations around them, the less draw they have on the nations. And like most people desperate to be accepted, the Israelites got themselves into some trouble. In their idolatry and in their sin, God lovingly brought judgment on them. He brought the nation of Assyria, which swooped down on the ten northern tribes and absolutely decimated them. 
during that time, before that time, and after that time, there was a prophet named Isaiah. And as Isaiah was writing about the destruction being brought on God's people, he didn't just say, hey, this is going to be terrible. He also said, there's hope. Which is, isn't that true of the gospel? The gospel is always full of bad news. The wrath of God is terrible, and that awaits you. But repentance offers you hope. But after the time for repentance had passed, in Isaiah 49, God promised to bring Israel back, to relent of his judgment. But that's not all he promised. In verse 6, he says this, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, to bring everyone back, and bring back those of Israel I have kept. And if you've been sleeping, this is the part to wake up on. I will also make you, that's Israel, a light for the nations. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So God promises Israel that he will use them as a light amongst the nations once again. But as you keep reading the Old Testament, you see that there's nothing particularly spectacular happening with Israel after he makes this promise to them. As a matter of fact, it only takes about 150 years until they've messed up so bad again that God sends another nation on them, Babylon, to crush them in his judgment. So much for being a light to the nations. The people are exiled, carried off as slaves. They're later brought back. But even after they return from exile, after they rebuild their walls, and after they rebuild the temple, and after they kind of reestablish their lives, they're still not really doing much. I mean, they've been conquered by the Romans, and they're kind of living hand to mouth, spiritually speaking. So the question is this. How will the Lord keep good on his promise to make Israel a light for the nations? How will God keep good on his promise to make Israel a light for the nations? Well, I think we see the beginning of that in today's text. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, comes as the true Israel. He is the true Israel, and he is beginning to light up his light. And as he lights up his light, you begin to see people being drawn into him. It starts off small in Galilee, then it goes out to Caesarea. But what you see here in today's text is that people are being drawn in by the holy light, the holy, loving light of Jesus Christ from further and further away, including where the Gentiles live. Israel in the Old Testament was very much a come and see kind of event. But soon, Jesus is going to switch from come and see to go and tell. And that's called the Great Commission. The come and see aspect of the Old Testament, the way we did mission in the Old Testament, is very vivid here with Jesus drawing crowds to himself in such great numbers that Jesus actually has to call for a boat so that he can continue to preach without the crowds crushing him. Look at verse 9. It reads, And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Have you guys ever seen those videos on the internet of like the Black, the Black Friday mobs? You know? It's like there's a thousand people outside of Walmart Friday morning, bellies full of turkey. They've probably been camping out. That microwave's been on sale. And they know what they're there for. They're going to get their microwave. 
their flat screens or whatever they want. The doors open and the crowd surges forward. And these videos show people getting trampled, getting knocked over. There's fights. People get crushed. One year, somebody actually died. It's interesting to note that as we've been walking through the book of Mark, we've seen a lot about Jesus' divinity. I think it's all over the place. Uh, I've shared with the congregation that, that there's a company asking me to write a book on the prosperity gospel. I'm very, very seriously considering write a, writing a book on the divinity of Jesus in the book of Mark. But here in today's text, we see something about the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was worried that the crowd was going to crush him. Jesus is not Superman. Bullets don't reflect off of Jesus' chest. He's not faster than a speeding bullet. Whenever people get Jesus wrong, they usually get him wrong in one of two ways. They either overemphasize his humanity, saying that he wasn't really God, that he was just a good teacher, or they overemphasize his deity, neglecting the fact that he really did come down in human flesh. When Jesus was beaten and whipped and scourged and then laid down on the cross, as they outstretched his arm and held it there and put the nail in his palm and drove it in there with a hammer, the nail did not bend against his hand. It went through his flesh. Jesus is fully man. And we see that here today as he fears that this crowd is going to crush him, preventing his continued faithful preaching of God's word. But that doesn't just teach us something about Jesus, this whole getting crushed by a crowd thing. It also teaches us something about the nature of the crowd. They want what Jesus has to offer. I mean, Jesus has been going around healing, casting out demons, preaching powerfully, and that is what's drawing people's attention to him. People are there to see what Jesus can do for them. They want what Jesus has to offer more than they want Jesus himself. If they actually cared about Jesus, if they actually loved Jesus, they would never let anything happen to him. They would never let any harm come to him. But when people are in a frenzy to get what they want, they have tunnel vision. They can't see clearly. They don't think clearly. They're operating on pure adrenaline. And because of that, they fail to recognize that their desperation to get what Jesus is offering them can possibly kill him. Consider this. If people could kill God and get what they want, they would. If people could kill God and get what they want from him, they would. The difference between the converted man and the unconverted man is this. Now, I'm using these terms converted and unconverted. What I do not mean here is somebody who calls himself a Christian. Tons of people call themselves Christians and are not actually Christians. The Holy Spirit has not converted the hearts of many people, probably thousands of people, in Decatur, who call themselves Christians. What I mean is the person who has had their heart, their heart of stone, broken up by God the Holy Spirit. A person who has been given a heart of flesh. A person who has been brought from death to life. I'm talking about a person who has been born again by the Spirit of God. That is a converted person. And an unconverted person is someone who has not experienced that. The converted man wants what God has to offer. Excuse me. The unconverted man wants what God has to offer. But the converted man, 
He only wants God himself. The unconverted man says, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, just give me what I want. Whereas the converted man says, take whatever you want. Take my health. Take my money. Take my life. But just don't take my God from me. The unconverted man seeks first all the things of the world. And then, if there's any room left, if there's just any room left after he's got everything that he can possibly get out of religion in this world, he seeks God and his kingdom as an add-on to his life. The converted man seeks first God and his kingdom. And he trusts that everything else will be taken care of. The crowd here in Mark chapter 3 is not like Lenny. Lenny was a character from The Grapes of Wrath, a fantastic American novel. Lenny was a mentally challenged, massive human being who couldn't help but crush the things that he loved. He had a, a female romance interest, unbeknownst to her. One day in a stable, they were having a conversation. She became afraid of him. She screamed. He tried to calm her down. No, 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 everything's okay. And he covered her mouth up. But he never stopped covering her mouth up. And he killed her. Lenny also had a pet mouse. Several pet mice. And poor Lenny, he loved the mouse so much, all he wanted to do was to hug it and to hold it and to squeeze it tight. But anytime Lenny would do that, he would kill the mouse. The crowd here in Mark chapter 3 is not like Lenny. This crowd doesn't accidentally crush everything that it loves. This crowd is willing to crush that which it does not love in order to get that which it does love. In order to get what it loves most. What it wants for itself. So many people are attracted to the idea of Jesus, but not Jesus himself. People will take Jesus the miracle worker. People will take Jesus the healer. People will take Jesus the ATM, the health and wealth dispenser, but could care less about the real Jesus who actually exists and who now stands in atonement, making a, making a, excuse me, now stands as our advocate before the Father. Many so-called churches cater to man's carnal understanding of Christ and the gospel, promising people that Jesus will give them everything that their sinful hearts desire, How terrible would a God be who gave us everything that we desired? How cruel would that God be? In the Gospel of Mark, crowds are often referred to in a negative light. They're treated as an obstacle to Jesus' ministry, not an advantage. They are treated as something to be avoided rather than something to be pursued or celebrated. They seem to get in Jesus' way obstructing his true mission to preach and teach as they clamor for what Jesus can do for them. So why do so many churches do whatever they can to draw a crowd? Why do we care so much about drawing massive crowds, the throbbing masses, and why do we do whatever we can to feed them, feed them, feed them, even to the point of lying about Jesus and what he has done on the cross for them? These wolves... Men and women alike tell people exactly what they want to hear. Do you want more money? 
Jesus will give you that. But Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Do you want to be a respectable member of society? Jesus will give you that. But Jesus said that we would be hated and persecuted. He said that we would live as exiles and sojourners. We would be like sheep amongst the wolves. Our master died a bloody criminal's death on the cross. Not as a respected member of society. Do you want perfect health? Jesus will give you that. But God's word tells us that we still live in broken vessels of clay. And only after death will we know the fullness of our physical healing. Peter's response to the crowds later, after all this takes place, he's being commissioned as an apostle, very much like his master. His response is very much like his master's. And it's very different than many modern churches. Peter gave one man his health back in Acts chapter 3, but the man actually asked him for money. And he said, I don't have any money. And he gave him something different than what he wanted. Just prior to that in the book of Acts, Peter does the opposite of what any church growth expert will tell you that you should do. He stands up before a crowd of people, and he tells them that they are all guilty of murdering God. Later in chapter 4, when asked about the man that he healed in chapter 3, Peter tells the crowd, Hey, you remember Jesus? You remember that Jesus, the one that you murdered? Well, it's through his power that this man is healed. I just want to make sure that the gospel is preached faithfully in this church, even the hard parts of the gospel. So let me just take a moment right now to preach it so that we all are on the same page, visitors, members alike. God created us good. He created us good and in his image to reflect his glory on the earth. But because of the sin of our father Adam, we fell from that glory. And sin entered the world. And it has ruined everything since. Mankind has rebelled against God. He has chased after his own ways. He has done what is right in his own eyes. Every thought and intention of his heart has only and always been continually evil. That's not a quote from a reformer. That's a quote from the book of Exodus, of Genesis. But God promised that he would fix things. He promised that he wouldn't leave us in our sin. He promised that he wouldn't leave us in our brokenness. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ. God, the second person of the Trinity, came down and dwelled in human flesh. He lived among us. He lived a perfectly righteous life. He perfectly obeyed all the righteous requirements of God's law. He was faithful and obedient to the will of the Father in a way that no human being ever was before or ever will be again. And then we murdered him. You and I, we murdered him. Do you, do you partake in your responsibility for the death of Jesus Christ? It was your sin that put Jesus on the cross. It was my sin that hung him there. We are guilty. We are sinners. And he loved us so much that even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he died for us. 
He gave us that which we didn't deserve. He made a way for us to be brought back to the Father. And now the holy, burning, raging, incomprehensible wrath of God that awaits every enemy of God has been removed from us. Because it was poured out on his head. And what we receive is the righteous life from Jesus Christ. We receive his perfection. And anyone who repents of their sins and trusts in Jesus Christ can partake of that grace. If you don't know him today, and if you're still living in your sin, Christ is calling to you. Repent. Turn from your sins. Turn from trusting in yourself. Turn from your own power, your own righteousness, your own religion, and turn to Christ. He can save you. Jesus is the light. And he is drawing people everywhere unto himself. And you see it beginning right here in the beginning of Mark chapter 3. The nations are beginning to come to Jesus. Later, Jesus will take the disciples and he will say, enough is enough. It's no more come and see. Now it's time to go and tell. And that is what we do as Christians. We take the light of Jesus Christ with us wherever we go. And we tell the nations that he has made a way for us to be reconciled to God. In the next couple of verses, we're going to see Jesus drawing men to himself, the same men who will once, one day take that gospel out to the nations. So come back next week, 1030, and we'll read about that together. Let me pray. Your love is incomprehensible, Lord. You love all the peoples of the earth, and yet you love certain people with a special love. Your grace is beyond us. Your holiness is unfathomable. When we encounter it, we are men who come apart at the seams, and we fall down dead as, we fall down as dead before you. I pray that you would help us to revel in these attributes, to study them, to pursue them, to try to grow in them in our own holiness, in our own lives. I pray that you would help this church to understand its mission, which is to take the light of your Son, Jesus Christ, to the nations. Give us what we need to be obedient, Lord. We ask this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.